Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. All right, we are very thrilled to have with us uh, Brother Bakari Gatwana, uh, who's an internationally known cultural critic, um, hip hop act- activist, uh, executive director of Rap Sessions which for 14 years has conducted over 150 town hall meetings around the nation about difficult dialogues facing the hip-hop and millennial generation. Uh, He's the author of many books and anthologies, um, including with the hip-hop artist and icon Rakim, Sweat the Technique, Revelations on Creativity from the Lyrical Genius. Uh, He was the 2019-2020 Nasir Jones Hip-Hop Fellow at the Du Bois Research Institute and Hutchins Center at Harvard University. He's the former editor-in-chief of The Source magazine, where I know his work from, and he's the co-founder of the first ever National Hip Hop Political Convention, which brought over 4,000 18 to 29-year-olds to Newark, New Jersey in 2004 to create and endorse a political agenda for the hip hop generation. Brother Bakari Kutwana, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thank you. How you doing today? I'm great. I wanted to chop it up uh, with you about just everything, especially, you know, I'm a Gen Xer like you and so inspirational for all of us who wanted to write about Black politics and hip hop and culture and social change um, to talk about masculinity. And I want to talk about Black masculinity and sort of a search for a post-patriarchal Black masculinity to talk about, um, you know, our feelings and to talk about our political empowerment at the same time. Right. And uh, you've been in the game for so long. It's a real thrill to, to have you and to be able to um, talk to you and chop it up, especially in the context of the pandemic, Black Lives Matter. And I know like me, you've seen over the last 20, 25 years, the real growth of Black women's political empowerment, not just through Black feminist thought and activism, and Black queer feminist thought and activism, but in so many different ways, Kamala Harris encompasses and encapsulates this symbolic, you know, as the first Black woman vice president-elect, but then you've got the activists, Tamika Mallory and Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi and Patrice Cullors and No Name and all these different folks who have really stepped up in a much bigger way to take their rightful place and be recognized as organizers and mobilizers. So I want to talk about all those things. But first, I want to talk to you and ask you, you know, how did you get into into hip hop and journalism? The source is one of the all time most important expressions of the culture. And you were editor of the source. And, you know, you're the writer of, you know, thousands of op eds and and essays, and you're also a convener. So you're this thought leader too, globally, uh, for the hip hop generation, especially that hip hop generation connected to Generation X. What inspired you to take on this role? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, I think there have been a lot of um, a lot of contributing uh, variables. Um, I grew up in Long Island. Um, Strong I, Island. I went to school <laughs> in Strong Island, Stony Brook University. Okay, yeah, and so I, I was uh, my my high school years were 1980 to 1984, 
And so, um, and I have, I have siblings that are eight and nine years older than me, my brothers, and they, you know, so I was able to be introduced at an early age to a lot of the music that came before hip hop. Um, of course, they were like anti-hip hop. <laughs> they were like, well, this is not music. What do you got? It's just people talking. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. I think that, but I connected with hip hop very early. I saw something powerful in it. Um, I majored in English as an undergrad. And so I, I was just fascinated by this power of, of, of language. Um, I was an early um, kind of, uh, you know, I, I looked at the work of James Baldwin ahead of a lot of people um, that now is fashionable. Um, I was I did my master's degree in English with a um, with a with a uh, thesis on James Baldwin and his work. Um, and so I, I had read James Baldwin early. Um, I met Hakeem Manabuti as a as an undergraduate and ended up going to work at Third World Press after I left graduate school, got immersed in publishing and got immersed in the black power movement with the, you know, by way of the folks who were on the ground participants from the Institute of Positive Education people like uh, Jacob Carruthers, pe- people like uh, uh, Hannibal Afrique and uh, Maulana Karinga and, and uh, Kalamu Yasalam and, and many, Gil Scott Heron, Shelly Sanchez, Gwendolyn Brooks, and, and many, many um, others. And so, but while I lived in Chicago for five years after I finished uh, my master's degree, I then, I also encountered... Um, Oh uh, God! What is the brother's name? Who um, before the Mayfowl, Lerone Bennett? Yeah, Lerone Bennett lived in uh, him and my girlfriend, who then became my wife. <laughs> they lived in the same building, so I would see Lerone Bennett on the elevator, and <laughs> we'd have these crazy conversations about publishing and the history of Black Power, et cetera. And so. Um, I was talking to him about Ebony at that point, but I was also working at Third World Press and we were looking at the impact of things like the ISIS papers and Chancellor Williams, Destruction of Black Civilization, John Henry Clark, all of those folks, Ivan Van Sertema. And so um, I began to realize from talking with these activists, um, some unknown soldiers, unnamed soldiers in in the Black Power movement, that I needed to connect with my own generation. And so I began to look at what was the major force. And at that time, it was hip hop. And so I wanted to take my editing skill set to the Source magazine, finagle my way there. <laughs> um, and the rest is kind of history. But, that, but the formation of my, poli- my political thinking was, you know, being engaged with these folks out of the Black Power movement. Yeah, and that's a a great segue because you know my 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 scholarship has been on Black Power studies, and it's coming out of my my activism and my mother as a as a Haitian immigrant, but a hospital worker, trade unionist, and and converging there. And Sonia Sanchez was one of my advisors at Temple University for my PhD. I wanna I wanna ask you about uh, just being a black man, and especially in this context, sort of straight black men, and sort of the evolution that has happened over the last 30 years. Uh, And I think in 2020, you sort of see a cultural mashup because we see some brothers have really evolved, including Generation X, and some haven't. And by evolving, I mean really challenging 
the ingrained um, sexism and misogyny, the homophobia, the queerphobia, the transphobia that I think we all grew up in. I grew up in New York, Brooklyn, and Queens, and certainly that was a part of my life. Uh, talk to me about how it was then when we think about late 80s, early 90s, Black consciousness movement, uh, a new Black consciousness movement that's definitely inspired by the Black power era. But you think about Public Enemy, and these are all people you know, Chuck D. Right. Uh, you think about X-Clan. I was rocking X-Clan. I'm a little younger than you. I started college in 1990. Okay. And it's, it's to the East Black words. Absolutely. And I graduated, you know, and, and, <laughs> and Malcolm, Malcolm X, the movie, Malcolm Martin and me, right. and Public Enemy right. telling us it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Uh, talk to me about that period and, and why that was so consequential for Black for hip hop, for black folks, but also what what black men were trying to do, and then and then I want to ask about the evolution of that. I'm thinking yeah. about poor righteous yeah. teachers. I'm thinking about tribe called quest and native tongues, and this, right. this 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 kind of this kind of new version and vision of blackness that people were trying to connect to before the Black Lives Matter movement. We, we were out in the streets with Reverend Al Sharpton. We were right. out in the streets with Reverend Herbert Dowertree. We were out in the streets in Philadelphia with Ramona Africa and others. That's right. <laughs> Talk to me. And, and, I, and I was out on those streets. I'm, I'm yeah. my mother. I'm the proud son of Haitian immigrants. We were, we were out on those streets. So talk to me about that, that period, because I think a lot of folks, that period has become history, but you lived it. And I know I've yeah. lived it. I mean, and I you, think, you've been right there. Yeah. And what's interesting about it is I feel what's the, the most interesting thing about it right now, I think, is I feel like the 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 Black Lives Matter movement has kind of um, done some revisionist history <laughs> in which they kind of just leapfrog over all of those years. And, yeah. you know, if you know the work of, uh, of uh, Vincent Harding and his brilliant There is a River, he talks about yeah. the history and evolution of, of, of Black political struggle and how each generation builds on the next. So I wonder, I'm wonder. i wondering and I'm lost in understanding how the Black Lives Matter movement understands itself without really delving into that period. Um, but that might be another podcast. But uh, I think some people have. I think Barbara Ransby has. In Barbara, her, her Barbara Ransby's not a Black Lives Matter activist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think she has in that in that book. I think she's a supporter. She's absolutely she's, a supporter. But yeah, but I, but yeah. I feel like let's yeah. say when I read the 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 work of uh, both Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza, their books. Okay. You know, both of them. You know, I would imagine born in like in the early early eighties. Um, but their points of reference and much of this Black Lives Matter movement has been um, the '60s, the the Panthers, and um, so I, I I feel like, and even when the, in the framing of their uh, national convening, their point of reference was Gary, completely missing or not mentioning or choosing not to mention the National Hip Hop Political Convention. That took place in 2004, which built on the Gary, Indiana yeah. uh, convention. So I feel like there's a lot of history that happens that prepares the way for Black Lives Matter. Um, and I think that they need to be familiar with that history as well as what happened in the 60s. I mean, I think that one of the things that happens is you have these big, um, you know, the 60s was so huge and transformative that for many of us who grew up in the what, what I call the hip hop generation, it was almost impossible for us to begin to imagine a politics that didn't parrot 
you know, the, the politics of the 60s. And so it took us time, I think, to begin to imagine what was our own generational thrust that, that was different. But I think absolutely the 60s movements um, framed our politics. I mean, as a student, I spent a lot of time with, with uh, Kwame Touré and uh, at the time he was running the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Um, and I, 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 I met Kwame Ture in graduate school. I obviously wrote, wrote a biography yeah, absolutely you did. <laughs> about Stokely. A great, and, um, a great, yeah. great biography. So, yeah, so, so I spent a lot of time with Kwame Ture. Um, he was, you know, um, he spent a lot of time in um, Rochester where I was an undergraduate. His sister-in-law, Zozo Lair, lived there. She was from South Africa and the, the sister of Miriam McCabe. And so he would come through to town often when he came to the U.S. And he kind of adopted us as students. We have us. We go over to the house and sit down and chop it up with him. And it was a very important part of my uh, formation, even before I got to, to to Third World Press. But back to your other point, <laughs> which was what was happening. I mean, and then I think about things like the the uh, National Black United Front and Conrad World, the Million Man March. I mean, like. Ramona Africa and, and the move, like all of those, um, Al Sharpton and the protests around, not just Tawana Brawley, but many of the police uh, brutality um, incidents, um, th- those things were instrumental. Um, the the, the, the uh, street protests in response to uh, Yusef Hawkins and- uh, Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was around West Coast, things But do like, you think, you, mm-hmm. you know, Bakari, do you think that part of the reason why some people try to overlook aspects of that history, Black Radical Congress, is that in many ways, some of that history is intersectional. And you, you think about uh, Beth Ritchie's um, arrested development mm-hmm. and looks at Black women, and, and she was part of those. You know, there's there's movements that are intersectional going back to, obviously, Combi River Collective, but right. even deep into the 1980s and 90s, but that a lot of these movements actually weren't. You know, I, I I was at the Black Radical Congress. You're saying that in Chicago. a lot of the movements weren't intersectional. Intersectional, yeah, in the sense of like when I've been in movements and movement meetings when right. Black women were trying to talk about you know, you know, feminism and socialism and you know, Black power activism and radicalism and nationalism, and and we're really getting real pushback. Sometimes mm. people trying to shout mm. them shout them mm-hmm. down, um, and say you know you're trying to inject something. That's interesting. Um, um, you know, so I, I, I think, I think, but I think I actually appreciate your point that yeah. at times people are, you still have to deal with the history. I think but you I think have one to deal with the history. Why, yeah. One of the reasons why sometimes people, um, I think short change the eighties and nineties is because in a lot of ways there were aspects of that history, even as you have parallel uh, black feminist movements that yeah. are going on at the grassroots level at the national level, in in a way that I think is dissimilar to now in 2020, um, you still had to you still had a, a, a framework of patriarchy vis-a-vis black liberation. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, that's interesting. It's an interesting way of of thinking about it. Um, I, I mean, of course, the terminology even of intersectionality comes out of the black. Power um, thrust with oh, yeah. K- uh, Kimberly Crenshaw being at Cornell University in a Black Studies department 
or yeah. program. You know what I mean? So I, so I feel like I feel like it's hard to parse it in that way for me. Um, and most certainly, if I talk about the National Hip Hop Political Convention as an example, we we had a, a women's caucus with at, at the convention, <laughs> and, and and women prominently involved. Um, the co-chairs were were Raz Baraka and uh, Angela Woodson, who's out of uh, out, out of Cleveland. Rosa Clemente was heavily involved. Zenzele mm-hmm. Stokes. So, I mean. I mean, I, I feel like so much of my evolution as a political thinker, you know, is, is always um, there with 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 women. Um, so I don't I don't I don't I don't I don't see it that distinctly uh, different. But I do think that there are other reasons that that may be at work for that. But to your point around the. Um, the, the the 80s and some of the hip hop stuff. I mean, the hip hop was this was was critical, um, and it was critical. I think because of we were coming out of the, there. There was a look back at that Black Power movement, and there was a desire to see ourselves distinctly. And in terms of the masculinity, most certainly, I think there weren't a lot of places where you saw the voices of uh, young Black men front and center. And so hip hop kind of became that space. And I don't think that it was, and even I would say in the earlier days, you really go back into the early, early 80s um, and, and to mid 80s when people are first getting record deals and stuff. There are, there are a lot of women in those formations. So I think um, there is a project done by, being done right now by, headed by a woman named Akua Naru, who is a hip hop artist from New Haven, uh, has spent a lot of time in Germany. This project is called The Keepers. That's kind of unearthing this history of women and and hip hop that's kind of been hidden, I think. Um, So I think that there is a lot of that. But in terms of the in terms of the black political influence of the black power movement on this generation, I write about this in uh, the new book out in February, um, 100 Souls. By Ibram Kendi. I think you're also in that book as well. Yeah, right? yeah. Four four hundred souls. Four hundred yeah. souls. I'm sorry. Yeah. And yeah. so and so I write about this and I write about the influence of those years on people like Van Jones, on people like Tarana Burke, on people like um, Latasha Brown, a, a Black Voters Matter, um, uh, people like um, uh, Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, yeah. And so I feel like. You and on people like um, the sister who runs Planned Parenthood, Alexis McGill Johnson, who was also the head of P Diddy's Citizen Change and kind of was involved with the whole voter die, um, as well as the Russell Simmons uh, work around uh, uh, what was national? What was Russell Simmons' hip hop group called? Man, national hip hop. No, it was a hip hop political. The Hip Hop Summit Action Network was the was the organization. Alexis was involved in that also. So I think that you see the impact of a lot of these folks now. You talk to them, even Youssef Salam, and these folks' earliest orientations around Black political thought came via hip hop. Um, and people like you're talking about Ra- Rakim and Poor Righteous Teachers and Ice Cube and uh, Public Enemy and uh, and and many 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 others. Uh, X Clan. Uh, they just celebrated. I believe what is that the twentieth twenty fifth anniversary of To the East Blackwoods? 
Oh, thirtieth. The thirtieth. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. and that brother, um, uh, Paradise Gray, um, who I've been in contact with for years, he also right was has been involved with the. He was one of the founders of One Hood, the organization that Jusiri X runs out of Pittsburgh. That has had a big impact on a lot of the political activism that's happening right now amongst people within this millennial uh, generation. So I think that all of that evolution is a connection. In terms of the masculinity, I mean, I I feel like, um, again, (laughs) I think there's a lot of revisionist history around the the queer, uh, the interface of uh, hip hop in the the queer community. And again, I, I think that this becomes problematic primarily when you look at hip hop only as music. And so in my work, I've tried to get people to think about hip hop as a generational moment. And I think when you think about hip hop as a generational moment and a generational thrust, much the same way that you think about black power as a generational thrust or um, or the civil rights uh, movement and the civil rights era as a generational thrust, I think you start to get more into the nuances of the ways in which people are thinking through culture and, and, and politics. I think the same is true of, of hip hop because you can't, if, if hip hop is just misogyny, then what do you do with a uh, Rosa Clemente? <laughs> you know what I mean? What do you do with an organization or, or a hip hop group like the Deep Dick Collective, which um, the brother who does the policing work now, uh, I'm trying to think of what his name is. He was one of the artists in that group. You know who I'm talking about? Um. You're not sure. I'll have to. I'll have to think about it for a second. Um. Oh my goodness, he is at the forefront of policy around policing, and I cannot think of what his name is right now. Um. Oh my goodness, I'm at to think about. Oh, it uh, Phil. Phil. That's Goff? right. Phil Gar. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. So I feel like it's shorthand that people yeah. are doing. But let me push. Let me push back. Uh, <laughs> you dig down in this into the nuances. Yeah, it's Certainly. more complicated. No, no, I think it's always complicated. But what do you think about the fact that really, when we think about, especially, I want to fast forward and get to our time. This okay. time, of Black Lives Matter. <laughs> okay. Where again, you're, as as straight black men, cisgendered black men. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things I appreciate about Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti Racist. Um, a book that I teach. And Ibram, I think he's fantastic. He's been one of my, really one of my mentees. I'm 10 years older than Ibram, but but brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, where he talks about his own evolution, saying that he 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 admits, and you talked about the ISIS papers earlier. Right. He talks about having gotten through a very Afrocentric phase. You know, uh, white people are, are sort of just like the Nation of Islam, uh, genetically, you know, uh, geared to commit these acts of evil and uh, evolving from that, right? He talks about his homophobia, his transphobia, uh, his own sexism. Um, what do you think about the challenges? And I, you know, I really think about this in the context of Ice Cube and the um, contract for Black America and, w- and the way in which Cube, who I've always admired, and, and I was one of the first people to buy as a record, America's Most Wanted, and then Death Certificate as a follow-up, these brilliant masterpieces, right. 1990 and 91. But Cube, I thought, allowed himself to be played by the Trump administration by, in quotes, negotiating with these white supremacists around Black empowerment. <laughs> and some of that had to do with, it's not that the plan was bad, even though the plan wasn't as far left as, say, uh, uh, AOC and other people, 
But Derek Hamilton and others were connected to helping him write that plan about real investment and wealth building for the Black communities. If that plan was ever followed, it would actually absolutely be a game changer. Um, but in a lot of ways, Cube came out front and center. And instead of connecting with BLM folks, instead of connecting with people like even people from an earlier generation, like Sherilyn Eiffel, who's head of the Legal Defense right. Fund, who I know who's a friend and who's brilliant. He just came out on his own. And I think one of the things about our generation, and I'll say my gener- generation X, I'm born 1972, is that the, the way we were used to it being, whether it's Jesse Jackson or, or even Reverend Sharpton, who I really admire, um, and others, even if we said you saw a woman's caucus, it was male leadership. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, like, it, it, so there's a difference. I mean, one of the interesting parts about, I think, the Black Lives Matter movement is this idea of centering uh, Black women, but in doing so, uh, saying that Black men, especially I think straight Black men who have been used to being at the center, can be part of the movement and can be even leaders, but they're servant-oriented leaders, and you're not necessarily going to be the first person in the photo op. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so yeah. when I saw Cube do that, and I wrote something about Cube, CNN saying, you know, the dangers of that perspective and how he allowed himself to be used. But I thought a lot of it was because there's so many of these Black women, uh, and not just, you know, Breonna Taylor posthumously, but you saw the Vanity Fair issue that Ta-Nehisi did, uh, British right. Vogue, the work of Roxanne Gay. Uh, I just had Tressie McMillan-Cottom do a program for us. There's just been so much play that I think that brothers can get nervous. And I understand why the nervousness, but I'd love us to contextualize and see that just because she's getting the play doesn't mean that your leadership is lacking. It just means that we're building a new paradigm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Ice Cube is a bad example. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Tell me. P- push back, brother. Push back. <laughs> I think Ice Cube is a bad example because I feel like I feel like Ice Cube has made a lot of missteps. And a lot of those missteps w- are rooted in his own uh, evolution. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Ice Cube has been, you know... I, I, not just Ice Cube. I feel like P. Diddy has made made similar missteps, and Kanye West as well. I mean, I feel like, and and some of that has to do with the ways in which the black community um, has centered celebrity. You know what I mean? Yeah. So these guys get to hide behind their celebrity, and often, you know, people are celebrating them because of their celebrity and their wealth. So I feel like that kind of gave. Ice Cube, a certain level of arrogance that made him imagine that, you know, nothing's going on already. <laughs> so when, yeah, when P. Yeah. Diddy says, well, we're going to build a black political party, like, I mean, that idea has been around for a very long time. Like, yeah, but yeah. he's saying it as if this is an original idea. And I feel like that's what Ice Cube did. I think Ice Cube, rather than, I mean, like, a logical to me connection for Ice Cube would have been to have a conversation with Van Jones or to have a conversation with Davey D. Cook out of uh, the Bay, who he knows. But you've, um, mentioned, you've mentioned Van Jones, and, yes. and, and I, I know Van a little bit too. We were both part of the Route 100 in 2014. But what do you think about Van Jones's work with the Trump administration and Jared Kushner? Don't yeah. you think that that is another version of negotiating with white supremacists? I and mean, even Malcolm X tried to do yeah. it. Um, 
Marcus Garvey tried to do it. Uh, Keisha Blaine's new book, Set the World on Fire, shows us when some Black women tried to do it. But I would tell people as a rule, never negotiate with white supremacists. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, rule I, number I, one. I think that Van, um, you read it, I don't know if you've read his last work, um, I'm trying to remember the title right now, The Messy Truth, I think it's called. I think in no. that book, he talks a lot about, you know, I think that Van has been very fearful of, uh, you know, the country kind of descending into a really dark place if Trump was reelected for one thing. But I think that in general, even beyond that, before that, I think he's really concerned about the danger that this partisanship within American politics poses for the future of American democracy. And so I, I think that if you looked at his work, I think that his interest is in, you know, I mean, one, I think it is a, a kind of a romantic, uh, um, a, a romanticization of, Democrats and Republicans working across the aisle. And I think this gets to your uh, topic of your podcast around race and democracy. I mean, I think that there is a certain point in which we're in a moment in which a lot of folks who are visible are very invested in the Democratic Party, more so and possibly equal to a Black political agenda. And I think that historically, our people who have been at the forefront of Black political thought have advanced a black political agenda. I think that when we get steeped into and pulled down into this, uh, you know, imagining that we're a part of the Democratic Party and that the Democratic Party is going to advance our issues and they don't have a history of doing that, I think we start to get into a little bit of deeper, uh, a deep, deeper trouble. And so I, that's what I see with, I think Van wanted a victory around the criminal justice uh, reform work and you know, there was this certain idea, well, you're going to deal with who's in power. I think Ice Cube took that same stance. Well, the Trump administration is in power and he is the president. So I'm going to deal with who's going to deal with me. I mean, yeah. the problem yeah. with that becomes there's so many people Ice Cube could have talked to. And, and so often people have to understand who are celebrities. It's not about you. <laughs> you know what I mean? There is a community of people who are out here fighting and working on these issues. And maybe it might be a good idea to see who those folks are rather than just going out. But Ice Cube was really, if you looked at some of his work, he was very, uh, very um, disturbed and, and shaken, I think, by what happened with George Floyd, as were a lot of other people. And I felt like this, a lot of this was his response to that. Now, when you think about BLM in this year in terms of 2020 and so many Black women like Stacey Abrams, but of course you have people like Reverend William Barber um, and this next generation, hip hop generation, uh, Generation Z or, or Generation I, whatever we want to call them. Um, what do you think? One, I mean, with issues like defund the police, you've got President Barack Obama uh, who I push back against on this, saying that defund the police, and Joe Biden says that too, in a in a leaked conversation, cost the Democrats the Senate, cost them seats in the House of Representatives. The Root has a new story out saying, uh, and I've written about this too, that no, in fact, defund the police helped win the White House because without the yeah. George Floyd protests, you wouldn't have gotten uh, the anti-racist coalition to get 81 million people to the polls, like their lives depended on it. Right. You wouldn't have been able to turn Georgia blue. So w what do you think of 
Um, and you've been such a big part of this with the hip hop summits and what you did in 2004, which you've continued to do. But the role of of hip hop uh, and and politics in our democracy, you know, and so I'm thinking really here of um, people like the Cory Bushes and the AOCs and Jamar Bowman and so many different people who are running. And in certain ways, to me, they they're running as like hip hop politicians in the best sense of the word. Yeah. So I look at Alexandria yeah. Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Cori Bush. And to me, that's hip hop. Yeah. You know, because hip hop was speaking truth to power. Chuck D, yeah. who's one of my idols, who said we were the black CNN, uh, uh, poor, poor righteous teachers, <laughs> right. uh, tribe called quest, uh, common na- native, native tongues. Hip hop was giving it the raw and saying we need a green new deal. Hip hop, that, and it, that's what I love about Black Lives Matter with the Black Lives Matter policy agenda, where they're saying, here's what we're going to do for immigrants, for people who are poor, for people who are non able bodied. These are people who I grew up in Southside Jamaica, Queens with. There were no white people in Southside right. Jamaica, Queens. Right. I grew up in Asada Shakur's neighborhood. She, I teach Asada, and Asada says that I didn't see any white people. I grew up there too. I didn't see any white people. <laughs> so you want to talk about segregation? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You want to talk about segregation? I didn't see white people till high school, period, unless it was on television. That's how segregated right. my neighborhood Absolutely. was. No one, no one drove past that neighborhood. Right. Who's white? Okay, you know. So what 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 do you think about the role of hip hop now in 2020? Because I think with these politicians, I think with Black Lives Matter, and and I think so so often hip hop has always been intersectional about issues, and now it's being even more intersectional about identity. And what I mean by that, hip hop always talked about food justice. It talked about police brutality. It talked about uh, uh, healthcare and people seeking healthcare treatments that just weren't Western or Eurocentric healthcare treatments. It talked about public transportation. It talked about nuclear war. Right. It talked about domestic violence. It talked about all of it. And now yes. we're seeing how deep it is because the world is just so, so messed up. But hip hop, oh, and we, you know, hip hop is global, of course. Absolutely. They're talking about this in Africa, London, China, because of hip hop. Right. And so what do you feel like as we move forward, especially like I said, I think for the first time we're seeing hip hop generation politicians, including some of the people you're writing about in your new book in terms of um, Hakeem Jeffries. And right. his, his, his brother, Asan, is, is a great scholar uh, in his own right. OK, so um, um, what, what do we what do we think about uh, what's what's next for us, you know, in terms of that hip hop I mean, generation? I, I think. I want to kind of just kind of um, talk a little bit about some of the things you said. Um, one, I feel like there was a there was a this idea of uh, of defund the police, losing the House and the Senate. This is an interesting idea coming from a centrist Democrat <laughs> who was a president and uh, was more committed to the Democratic Party than he was to doing anything for Black people. So. Um, it's not surprising that that's his shorthand of the situation. I mean, people people turned out in the election, in my opinion. I'm also the um, co-editor of a book called Democracy Unchained, How to Rebuild Government for the People, which came out in March. Um, something I co-edited it with David Orr, Andrew Gumbel, and uh, William Becker. And, you know, people turned out, I feel, because they came to realize that democracy was threatened. 
Um, Amir Baraka used to always say that as black people, we fight for self-determination and we fight for democracy. And I think that you saw that top of the ticket activity around really the, the question of democracy and people coming to the realization that Trump was really, you know, taking the country off the rails. It's never been ideal for black folk, but we certainly didn't want to see it get worse. And so I think I think that was the response to to that to me is the assessment of what happened with this election. I don't think it was really about um, defund the police or, or, or not. The, the defund the police question, I think, is important. I think that it's interesting to see the evolution of these ideas. Um, you know, Angela Davis talks about the importance of speaking across generations as we articulate a politics um, even if there aren't things that we can see happen in our lifetime, we have to begin to speak those, those things into existence. And with this idea of abolish the police and abolish uh, prisons, she has certainly uh, done that and, and other, other folks have done it. And I think that we're starting to see the fruition of the evolution of, of, a, black, of a black politics. In terms of hip hop, and it's interesting because you know, I didn't make a hip hop connection to those folks. I think hip hop has evolved in some interesting ways um, relative to the questions of democracy, but I feel that those are, I think hip hop has always had a broad vision of democracy. I think hip hop has always had a broad vision of, uh, of humanism. I think hip hop has always had a pan-Africanist uh, and an internationalist vision. And I think that what we're seeing now is, in my opinion, the foremost uh, thought leadership of hip hop and in 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 its politics is happening at the local level. These aren't big name artists. So I think that when you see a Jasiri X or you see a, or a group like uh, Rebel Diaz or someone like Tef Poe out of, um, out of um, uh, St. Louis with the organization Hands Up United, I think all of these, uh, or, or someone like Akua Naru or someone like Invincible out of Detroit, I think all of these artists are really coexisting as artists and activists. And to me, that's the next evolution of a hip hop politics of meaning. These are people who are trying to build community where they are. Um, in Pittsburgh, Jasiri's organization, One Hood, they're presenting a challenge to themselves to, to imagine how do, how do we, what do we, what does a liberated black community uh, look like? And, and they're centering their activism in this um, at the intersection of hip hop and activism. So I think that's where I see the conversation going. Or you could look at someone, the evolution of an artist like Boots Riley, who was prominent in the early 90s and, you know, now more recently, you know, had the film. Uh, so I, I think that the, the, but we do see with major artists, some of the personal becoming enter into, into the realm of, of, of politics with uh, someone like a Meek Mill, um, or Jay-Z and others who are fighting around these issues and, you know, emerging younger artists like Corday, you know, joining the protests and, and, and others. So I think that it's a mixed bag, <laughs> but, but I think hip hop is present. I don't know how much I see hip hop directly interfacing with some of these folks that, that you're talking about other than the sister out of uh, Missouri. Um, because I do think that that grassroots Ferguson movement had prominent hip hop artists, again, grassroots artists at the forefront, 
people like Tef Poe and T Dubbo, and I'm trying to remember the brother's name who was a uh, councilman. Um, his name escapes me. He's also, a, I think, a spoken word artist or a hip hop artist as well. And I think, I think that work. Um, what was instrumental to what we see with Black Lives Matter. And again, there's a lot of revisionist history around the impact of Ferguson on what became a, a, a global Black Lives Matter movement. All right. So my final question, and this gets us back to the whole idea of, um, you know, race, democracy, but also masculinity in mm-hmm. terms of hip hop and our politics. What, what do you feel our, our chances? And do you have hope right now for this sort of post-patriarchal uh, masculinity within Black politics, within, within the hip-hop generation, within Black Lives Matter, uh, within American democracy, so that we can have this struggle for citizenship and dignity and self-determination that Amir Baraka talked about? Right. He was one of my mentors too, but in a way that's um, expansive and inclusive and is not bound by these old frameworks uh, that even Martin and Malcolm, who I've written about extensively, uh, at times succumbed to. Very, very yeah. nuanced. So this yeah. is not saying they were bad people, but who faltered in terms of the vision of a liberated future. So what do yeah. we think about that? A, I mean, again, po- I think some of these gra- some of these grassroots independent artists who are also activists. You know, I used to have long conversations with M1 of Dead Prez about this. And, um, you know, I would say, you're, you're, an, you're an artist and you're an activist. He's like, I really, I don't really put one of those identities ahead of the other. I kind of see these identities both living in one body. And I think that's what we're seeing to me from some of the hip hop artists who I feel are in the, at this uh, community level. But in terms of the masculinity and the and the patri and the post patriarchy, um, I think that yeah, there is there is absolutely there is hope. I think that some of these young brothers who I have mentioned, I believe they are pushing back in in very interesting ways. One of the things that we did um, this year, we partnered with uh, Black Voters Matter and Faith in Action uh, and uh, One Hood to put on a hip hop political education summit on black men and the vote. And we brought a wide diversity of black men into this conversation. We had Damon Dash, we had um, Professor Griff, we had M1, we had uh, Bun B, we had grassroots activists like um, J.R. Fleming, who does anti-eviction work in Chicago, uh, folks doing anti-violence work uh, like Kwabanon Nixon out of Milwaukee, um, trying to think of some of the other folks that uh, bro- the brother um, Terrence Muhammad, who works with the Poor People's Campaign and the Hip Hop uh, Caucus, and the brother Mondale Robinson, who works with the uh, organization uh, Black Male Voter Project. Um, and so I think that it's it's I, the conversations were very robust. The conversations were very much to the left of where the Democrats are with an agenda for black people and with an agenda for black men. I think that these are men who are leaders in their community, who are fathers, who are uh, husbands, who are open minded, who are working with people out of all communities and want to work with people out of all communities and have a very uh, radical analysis of, of, of gender. And I'm hopeful that when I look at this leadership of this generation of, of, of young people and, and, and activists, 
and their open-mindedness and their persistence and their hard work that we can build a politics of, of meaning that is respectful and inclusive. And I, and I think that we're already seeing some of the early work of that. TEFPO, again, I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, they started the organization, him and um, I'm trying to remember, the brother who's, uh, my God, I can't think of what his name is right now, uh, Dream Defenders, Phil Agnew. They started yeah, a Phil, position Phil's called a Black, yeah. Yeah, Black yeah. Men Build this yeah. year. Mm-hmm. And they have been very um, intentional, I think, about not only being inclusive, but advancing a certain uh, identity around Black masculinity. I mean, the one thing that I would caution about these conversations is uh, I think it's very important as we think about the self-determination um, as, as a non-negotiable that black men should have self-determination in these conversations around what they want to see a masculinity uh, uh, look like that is, yeah. res- that is a responsible mas- masculinity, Absolutely. that is an informed masculinity, that is an enlightened masculinity. And I think it's going to be work to do on that primarily in many ways because there, there aren't a lot of places in the society that are, that that reinforce the, this uh, this kind of positive uh, informed outlook, but there are many places in the society that reinforce the opposite. All right, we're going to leave it there on that hopeful note. We've been chatting with Bakari Kutwana, who's um, a journalist, uh, thought leader, uh, whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Village Voice, the Los Angeles Times. He's lectured at Princeton University, Harvard, Stanford University. Uh, He's the author and editor of many books, including Why White Kids Love Hip Hop, The Hip Hop Generation, The Rap on Gangster Rap, and his latest book, his latest anthology, rather, is Democracy Unchained, How to Rebuild Government for the People. Uh, Bakari, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor. You're one of the the folks who got me interested in in writing and in thinking uh, about, about hip hop, about politics about race, democracy on so many different levels. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful. Hey, look, I'll take that credit because your writing is brilliant. <laughs> no, <I'm, laughs> I'll take that credit. <laughs> Thank you. Your, your writing is amazing. And I'm really, uh, I'm enjoying the Stokely book and uh, the, 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 the sword and the shield. I was completely inspired by and maybe want to run out and read everything that, that you've written. So really appreciate you. No, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.